was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And before welcoming my fabulous guest for today, I'd like to let you know about a virtual event that I'm doing tomorrow, Wednesday, August 3rd at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. For those of you who can't stream it live, it'll also be available on YouTube afterwards. What it is is a night of Broadway trivia that I'm hosting as a benefit for dancers over 40. It will consist of five celebrity guest askers, the wonderful Lonnie Ackerman of Evita and Cats, veteran Broadway dancer Candy Brown, Jim Brochu, one of the funniest men alive, the great character actress Alex Corey, and my previous guest Joanne M. Hunter, asking a series of questions to a panel of four experts, Matt Koplick, who hosts the Broadway Breakdown podcast, Michael Portantier, a theatrical photographer and cabaret producer, Michael Musto, the famous columnist of The Village Voice, Queer Tea, and more, and Glenn Rosenblum, a theater expert and talent agency president. You won't want to miss it. The link to find it is available in the episode description, and admission is free. So mark your calendars for that. And now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest for today, one of Broadway's most legendary triple threats, the fabulous Sandy Duncan. Among the shows Sandy Duncan has led on Broadway are Peter Pan, My One and Only, Chicago, The Boyfriend, and Love is a Time of Day. She also appeared in Finding Neverland and Canterbury Tales on Broadway, and toured with The King and I. She has also appeared in Mame at Barrington Stage, No No Nanette at Encores, Your Own Thing off-Broadway, and The Sound of Music at City Center. She also has a fantastic career on screen. She led the sitcoms The Sandy Duncan Show and Funny Face, and starred in The Star-Spangled Girl and The Million Dollar Duck, as well as taking over for the lead on the series Valerie. So now, here she is, Sandy Duncan. Oh, well, I'd love to start by asking you uh, how you first became interested in performing. Um, let's see. How did I? I was about three or four, and I went to, pardon me, a dance recital. This is in Texas, where I was born and brought up. And I went to a dance recital, and as my mother tells it, if you can trust mothers, <laughs> she said I kept getting up and running down to the stage and trying to climb up the stairs on the side. What, honey? He says I still do it. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, I I would be brought back to my seat, and finally she said, you can have dancing lessons if you sit in your chair and be nice. So the next year I started dancing, and that's how I got my start, and I continued to study for the next few years. So I was about five then. By the time I was 12, uh, I got my first professional job in a show in Dallas, Texas. Uh, the King and I, I played one of the princesses. And from then on, I worked professionally. And were singing and acting always part of this as well, or was it just dancing at the start? It was mostly dancing. And then when, because 
when you do musicals in the old days, you you wouldn't know this because they don't do it anymore. They used to do shows at these theaters where you would do a show during the day, I mean, during the night, and rehearse a different show during the day. So every summer when I'd go up to Dallas, we would do six full productions, and they would bring in stars to be the star of the show, like uh, Gene Kelly or Don O'Connor or Ginger Rogers or whoever it was, they would come in and star in the show, and we would be the ensemble and the smaller roles. So initially, I was on the dancing ensemble, and then I started to get little little roles that I just mentioned, where I get to be an actress and talk and stuff. And then, slowly but surely, I got to do roles where I had to sing, dance, and act. And, and it was gradual, and it was a learning process to be around those people and watch them you know how they worked and were your parents uh, supportive of your interest very oh. very much so oh. are your parents supportive of yours yes yes they are which is fortunate yeah it is yeah. some people don't have that yeah and were there shows or movies that you saw during this time that inspired you or um, mostly, I'm trying to think if that was anything that I went, oh, I loved West Side Story, I remember as a kid seeing that, and then when I went to New York when I was 18, I had a job, I had a job doing Music Man at um, New York City Center, so that was lucky. Uh, I went to see Funny Girl one night while I was rehearsing. And I, I loved it so much and was so knocked out by what she did. I went to see it three more times. And I really had the money to be doing that, but I did it. And she was amazing, uh, Barbara Streisand. So I'd say those things inspired me to know how exciting uh, a show could be and how thrilled an audience could be by seeing someone do that. So it sort of set me on the, the path of this is what I want to do, period. That's what I want to do. So, And where did you study in terms of high school and college? And I went to college for a year only in uh, Texas at a place called Lon, L-O-N, Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S. And it was a, a, a theatrical school, really. It was, it was everything. They had basketball and all that stuff. But they had a very strong drama teacher there, and I went for her, and my dance teacher taught the dance and choreographed the shows there. And people like Tommy Toon went there and uh, George Boyd. A lot of people used this, it was a junior college, as a jump off to go to the University of Texas or somewhere or wherever they were going to go for training. It was like a jump off point. But in that year of being there, I did get this show in New York and I thought, well, if I'm trying to learn to do something to get a job like that, if I have a job like that, I better go do it. So I did, and one job, luckily for me, followed the next. I never had to, you know, wait tables or cater. You know, that's my son did that when he was getting started, and, you know, most actors do. They have to do other jobs to support themselves, and I felt very fortunate. It was a lot of money. I looked at my contract the other day <laughs> because I was doing some thing for, I don't know, somebody wanted some information. And my big grand total when I did The Boyfriend on Broadway, which is one of the leads that I did, was $130. That was it. Oh, yeah. 
And but I guess people could. I guess we could all survive with that much money then, because the cost of living was yeah. not, you know, out of the world in yeah. terms of being able to have to have six roommates to live in New York. It was reasonable. Yeah. And one of the shows I believe you did early on was Calamity Jane with Carol Burnett. And what was that experience like of working with her on, on that show? Yeah, she was. She was the star of the show. I was one of the dancers. And I can't remember the fellow's name who played opposite her. He was a big, blonde guy. Started with an L. His last name. Well, anyway, I can't remember it. But she was delightful as, as she appears to be and she threw everybody a big party one night I remember I was about 15 then something like that 15 or 16 and um, she embodied the the spirit of we're all in this together and um, actors are all pals and friends we get along we have a good time and it was a very positive atmosphere to work in oh. it was none of that stuff that you hear about famous actresses misbehaving. She was delightful. And you've been the star of a show on Broadway many times, and how do you sort of set the example for the cast when you're in that role? I think by, only I'm going on this because of what people tell me, because it's just, I guess I've done it so long, it's just natural, because they'll say that the, the, the spirit of the company starts from the top. If, yeah. if somebody is badly behaved or demanding or this, that, and the other thing. Uh, it it makes the company uneasy and it creates a, a negative environment. But if you go out there and you work really, really hard and set an example of doing your show, like I did Peter Pan, a show I did for, oh, yeah. oh God, I did 1,000 performances and I never missed one. So there's an example that you set by the way you work and it does feed down to to the all the other members of the, the cast because then they take a you know a pride in what they're doing and they think it's important which it is to to live up to your fellow actors expectations of you and and to be responsible to them i guess that's the word yeah, you have to be responsible because it's their jobs. And if you're not going to do your job, we may all be out of a job. <laughs> yeah. And I'm curious to know, at this time when you were auditioning in New York, did you have an audition song that you would use? Um, I had a bad one, yeah. I had a, you're supposed to have then that go a ballad and a, an uptune. So I didn't really have a ballad. I thought I was doing it both with it and I did a number from a show do you ever hear of a show called um, 110 in the Shade oh yes yes my Jonesing Schmidt yes so um, I had seen that on my first trip to New York with my dance teacher we saw some shows and that and she loves me were the first two shows I saw when I was about oh. 17 and I guess it was about that and I I fell in love with Lovie Ann Warren's number a little red hat. So when we put together an audition thing, I thought with my dance teacher, it'd be swell if I could do that number and then I could dance a little and then sing a little and then dance some more and I could do all styles of dancing. I could do it. Well, that's what we did and I didn't really take into consideration. It is a duet. So <laughs> I began on stage and go, we get in the car, we get in the car, he steps on the gas, he steps on the, whatever it was. I went through the whole duet doing both parts, and then I would break out in dance, 
Part of it would be gouache tays and Georgia tays at ballet and entrechats, and the rest would be jazz, and then some of it would be acrobatic. It was just horrible. I think I lost more auditions with that number than I. I, I don't think I ever got an audition except one. I couldn't do them, so I go audition, and they go, "Thank you," sort of like disbelieving they were watching this. I remember once I had a show. Um, the uh, Alan J. Lerner had come to see me in a show, and he came backstage, and he said, come to the audition tomorrow because I want you to have this role. Uh, it was in Coco uh, with Catherine Hepburn, and I did, and I brought my audition piece. And I, I need the producers and the director to see you. I went, oh, okay, not realizing yet that my number stunk. So I went over, and I did it, and I finished it, and there was this dead silence in the theater. And he comes down the aisle, and he goes, Honey, do you do you have another song? And I went, No. <laughs> oh, okay, thanks. I lost the job. I just, you know, it, it was hard to lose the job you had. I mean, it's harder to get a show, but I couldn't do any of it. I just couldn't. And I, I love to ask about. I'm not sure if this was the show you meant when you were saying that you moved to New York to do this show, but you did the Music Man at City Center, and. What was it like to be performing there? Be, I'd done the show um, in Dallas and then Kansas, is that right? In Kansas City. Uh, I'd done the show uh, for the summer. And so I came in in the fall to do it with uh, the city center company. And most of them were from, um, what were they from? What ballet company? I can't remember if it was New York City Ballet or... American Ballet Theater. I think it was American Ballet Theater. So most of the dancers were for the dance company. So I was a little intimidated by that. I was playing the role of um, Zanita. Oh. She mostly says, ye gods, the whole script. It's not a in-depth kind of part that's going to take a lot of, you know, studying and stuff. I, I didn't feel anything intimidating except just living up to what they were doing but as it turned out it it was it was terrific and the the guy who danced with me billy glassman i think his name was i'm pretty sure was very supportive and he was a bit older than i of course and um so there was support from people they didn't treat you like oh this is hick from texas trying to be in this dance you know show and and ona white who had originally choreographed it uh, came in to uh, to restage some things and to run the the auditions and direct it. So she was kind and and supportive as well. It was great. And I believe you worked with uh, there someone who you worked with quite a few times, which was Gus Shermer, the uh, director. <laughs> and what was your relationship like with him? Your working relationship? Um, I wish I'd been older when I knew <laughs> Gus because. He was a brilliant man. He was well read. He was well traveled. He was uh, had he was funny. He had opinions. He was caustic. He was I I was too young to know somebody like that. He yeah. mostly scared me. But he used to come down to Dallas and direct uh, shows. So I had known him throughout the years. He'd come down for the summer and direct two or three of the shows. So I had a relationship with him when I got to New York, and he was. Uh, directing a lot of shows at New York City Center at the time. So he hired me to do, uh, I guess I did 
four shows, not all with him, but he was very influential in my being hired to do them, like Louise and Carousel and, uh, what else? I did Liesl and Sound of Music and I did, I forget the Life with Father. And I did, oh, I did, uh, Finian's Rainbow, Susan the Silent. So I had a lot of, um, experience under my belt performing in New York before I even stepped out into the mainstream and oh, Gus directed you know several of those shows and then he became my manager oh yeah that was <laughs> that was um he was my manager for many many years I loved Gus I I just loved him he was a large man very blustery and and a personality a personality like you'd never meet for the rest <laughs> of your life he was one of a kind and I would love to ask And you know, I to interrupt, you know his dad was the owner of um, the Shermer Music Publishing Company. Oh, oh. Yeah. So he grew up very wealthy on the east side in a brownstone and went to private schools and the whole thing, but always just loved show business. And his dad uh, dated all these, because he was, he was a really large man and kind of obnoxious apparently. And he dated all of these, these movie star kind of people and would spend all this money on them because they didn't really want to date him. They just wanted to go to, uh, the Copacabana and all the cool clubs and restaurants. But Gus grew up with that kind of parent who was very disapproving of what he was doing with his life. He didn't want him to be in show business. He didn't like the fact that he was gay. Um, so there was a lot of uh, tension between them his whole life. So it, yeah. it colored, I think, who he was yeah. quite a bit. And you you had mentioned uh, that Carousel was one of the other shows you did there. And I'd love to ask you about that because you were working with Agnes DeMille. On. Yeah, yeah, Agnes DeMille, um, another... I got to work with all these really strong people, but she had auditioned for it. I surely didn't do Little Red Hat. Maybe I did. But anyway, um, I didn't. They they would call you into the rehearsal studio, just a huge number of people auditioning for each part for her ballet, and you'd all have to learn. It was a good chunk of the ballet. If you've ever seen the show, there's that ballet at the beginning that Louise does on a beach all by herself. You had to learn that whole thing for the audition. And then they would call you in in groups to do it, then they call you in singly to do it. It was a very long process. And I got down to uh, three, there were three, let's see, three dancers, and there was me, I mean, three ballet girls um, who were in the New York City Ballet Company, and they were the ones that were going to be doing all the uh, chorus work and the ensemble work in the ballet. So they peopled it and uh, with the New York City Ballet and then the lead dancer as Louise they wanted to be from the New York City Ballet so anyway we got down to, to that point and we're auditioning at New York City Center in the theater there and I did the opening again they each did the opening again and the stage manager came over to me and I thought well there goes that and he said you've done a wonderful audition this week but we're going to go with they wanted the more bunhead traditional dancer so I left and went back to the rehearsal club where I lived and took my hair off my fall to make me look like I had long hair and I had the flu and I was really tired so I just went back to bed and I get a call about an hour later and a friend of mine who worked there said, get back over here. I said, they already eliminated me. No, she said, get, go right now, over here, get back over here. 
And I said, but I don't feel good. Get over here. <laughs> so I put my fall back on. I trudged over the streets and got just, and they made me do the whole ballet thing again all the way through. So I did that feeling like really, ugh. And then they said, would I read the scenes? And I did. And I hear this voice in the back stomping down the, the, uh, the aisle. And she said, all right, all right, all right. We're going to give you this part. But you have to take 10 pounds of that lard off. Oh, oh my God. I was never fat. I'm kind of a skinny person. Oh, but yeah. for a ballet dancer, you know, they're bone thin. So rehearsing with her for the next two weeks, the lard came off, that's for sure. Okay. And it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. Oh, that yeah. And um, after this was your first experience with Peter Pan, of course you later would, as you mentioned, go on to star in it for a thousand performances, but you toured with uh, Betsy Palmer as Peter Pan, and w did you fall in love with the show immediately? I did, because it, it is, I mean, why do people keep... Uh, coming up with a new idea to do something about Peter Pan all the time. It's been around since 1905, as you know, and they just keep doing it in some form or the other because it's magic. And doing Wendy uh, with Betsy Palmer's Peter Pan, I, I, I even thought that was magic and my part was magic. So when I got to do it, it was, I can't really describe it, I really can't. I try to to think what my life would be like in show business and as an actor not to have done a role like that. And it's hard for me to believe because it is magical and what you have in that theater with those kids and that audience is beyond what you get no matter what the applause and the acclaim is. You don't get that kind of feeling with most shows. So I'm grateful that I got to do that. And what do you think it is about having an audience of kids that um that changes things? Um, because it, they are totally believers. Oh. Uh, if you get the, it's a bit I've said. It's a bit like performing for drunks. If <laughs> <laughs> if you're doing something that catches their attention and it's really engaged them. They'll go with you anywhere. I mean, they'll just go to any point in the, in a show that you want to make them believe something. And they're there with you and totally supporting you and believing you and focused on you. And I think children, like drunks, are the hardest because you have to get their attention and have them focus in on you. Or it would be... It would be a room full of paper wrappers and talking and oh. moving about, but they would sit stunned, quiet, silent, with their eyes on that stage, not moving, not talking. And then when the moment comes where you say Tinkerbell, they're just demented. They're so oh. excited to be part of, of helping Tinkerbell live. And I did another play once. I did another play once called um, What's it called? The Bell of Amherst. And that's a one-woman show <clears throat> where you play Emily Dickinson. And I remember the same feeling. I was doing it in a, uh, a play festival down in uh, South Carolina. Or North. I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, I'm down in the Carolinas. And it's, <clears throat> pardon me, doing the play 
to one afternoon, the, one of the first shows, to a, an audience of junior high schoolers. And I thought, oh, great. This is going to be something <laughs> to get these junior high school kids to focus in on Emily Dickinson and the Belle of Amherst because it's full of, um, it's full of play sections, you know, I mean, play of poetry sections and about her life, which was not the happiest thing. And the poetry very often is kind of down. And I thought, this isn't going to work. I'm going to lose my life here. So for some reason, because of the focus that we shared as an audience, and an actress, it was it was thrilling. It was they stood and screamed, quiet as mice. You know, they really listened. They really got it. And I know it was good because my husband had come down to see it, and he came back with one of our best friends, who's a, a director, and they were both crying. So that was good. <laughs> I made them cry. So that was thrilling. To go back uh, briefly to Peter Pan, when you were crafting your interpretation of that role, did you take things from Betsy Palmer or from Mary Martin? Nor, uh, no, I took things. I think from. I had to figure out how I was going to do it and what I did and didn't want to do. You know, <laughs> and I knew I wanted to love the show, which Mary did. She loved it as well, doing it. But her interpretation was of a generation. Uh, this is the 50s. She did it like late 50s, I think, on TV. Um, and it was a whole different world in the theater. And I knew that I didn't want to do it in that storytelling way that she had done it and been directed to do it, I'm sure, uh, because I didn't think it was um, appropriate for today's audience. And I didn't think it would hold their attention. It'd be like your mother or your grandmother telling you this story where when we did it, I said, I have to play it as much as I can, like a boy, like a real little kid. And there was some, you know, uh, objection about that from the producing team at first, and they were concerned that it had to be done traditionally. I said, I can't do it that way. I have to really attempt to be one of those lost boys. And so I did it, and, and it worked for me. Hers worked for her in that time, uh, but it was a different production when we did it. And I do want to ask you, too, about uh, George Rose and Beth Fowler, who are among your co-stars in that. Uh, George Rose was the uh, first Captain Hook, um, and he was there. My memory is so bad about things. I think, I'm pretty sure, George Rose opened the show with me in New York. He'd been doing it with me in, in, on the road in Dallas and at the Kennedy Center and so forth. And I think he was with the show when we opened. And then Chris Hewitt came in very soon after because George went on to do, I believe it was Edwin Drood. And uh, it, was a, it was a big change. They were two different performances. But George and I worked together in um, Canterbury Tales and had a great relationship. He thought I was just... It, and I thought he was scandalous. <laughs> I loved him, but he was—he had a mouth on him. So we got along, and then he left, and then uh, Chris Hewitt came in, and I had actually done the show with Chris about two years before up at the Kenley Players in Ohio. So I knew Chris well, and we hit it off, and he stayed the rest of the uh, run and did the rest of the shows. And Beth Fowler, uh, who has gone on to her own uh, 
fame, quite separate of, of me and, and Peter Pan. She sailed into, what was it she did, Edwin Drood? No, that's wrong. She oh, did uh, a... Sweeney Todd. Oh, Sweeney Todd, yeah. I didn't see it, but I heard she was terrific in it. And we had, there wasn't anybody in that company that didn't have a good relationship. Oh, yeah. We just, it was bliss. There was not one bad egg in the bunch. And we, the, the sad and unfortunate part of it is that it was during the whole big AIDS uh, era when we were losing people right and left. And I would say half from the crew to the dancers to the singers to the actors, uh, we lost. Oh. I lost three of my best friends in, in that uh, epidemic. It was horrible. Um, and luckily, is, for all intents and purposes, been at least uh, stopped. It doesn't, you know, rip up people's lives the way it did. But um, that was sad to finish the show and then know that you're losing people. That was a real sad time. And your um, the directors of that show were Rob Iscove and Ron Field. And so what was your sort of relationship like with them? Uh, I had worked with I had worked with Rob Isco on a lot of television specials, um, a couple out of London and then two or three in, in the States. And so I had a working relationship with him and his wife's friend of mine. And his kid. There was, you know, there was a relationship of life there. And he was really hard. He's, his choreography is very difficult. And so he came in and helped set my character with me. He was very supportive of doing it as a boy and not doing it with any reverence like, um, as opposed to doing, well, how do you fly? Instead of going, well, you just think lovely, wonderful thoughts. And uh, he said, kids don't know that they're doing it. Well, no, you just think, you think wonderful thoughts and up you go. I mean, he's trying to come up with an explanation as a young boy himself, he doesn't know how he flies, just fly, stupid. So um, he worked with me on that character, was very supportive of that. And then Ron Field, I knew from having lost two jobs because of him. <laughs> I auditioned for Cabaret, I'm sure with my great number, the little red hat, and he was very much against me uh, with Hal Prince, who wanted me. but. Ron said, no, I can't get, you know, no, no. So I didn't get that. And then years later, I was in the finals for uh, a role in um, Applause. Oh. Again, no, no, that's not who I want. I, I want this person. So I lost it again. And then we started working out when I moved to L.A. after that on TV shows together and really hit it off. And he became like this uh, mentor of mine and would use me whatever he could and uh, choreographed a big number for my husband and me that won an Emmy. Then he gave us a gift of a show at Radio City Music Hall and he came into Peter Pan to clean up some things that the producers wanted changed. So we became dear friends. Oh. And then he died. Oh, yeah. And I did want to ask, um, what was it like to have to fly every night, which must have been incredibly demanding of doing this show, and especially with your uh, famous eye issue that yeah. happened? It was It was never a problem. I'd be, my husband, you'd be better off 
with a wire on your back all the time. No, but because uh, they would fly me. There were a couple of times that I'd get flown into the, a light pole or, you know, come through the window at a too low a, a, a space through the, the window in the, the back of the, the set. But most times it was heaven, and I loved flying. I loved the whole sensation of flying, and I really got to the point where I thought I could fly. And then the fly out over the audience and back and back and forth across the stage, it was an amazing feeling. It really was, and it was not painful, and the vision thing was not a problem in the flying so much as um, other areas of the show, the getting in and out of the... Uh, uh, what do you call that thing? The, the 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 what would that be? The Lost Boys ca- ca- cavern cavern. Oh, you know the place where they live down yeah. under the underground, the underground house. That was a problem because you had to go down all these stairs oh. and you know jump on a pole and swing down. And but I had by that time so adjusted to my visual uh, problem of not being able to see out of one eye that I pretty much know what I'm doing. Like doing lifts with a partner, I'd count off steps, like it's five steps to them before I jump, because I don't have depth perception. If somebody hands me something, I will miss it if I don't really concentrate, like a cup, let's say, of coffee. I have to really focus to get my hand on the cup and not drop it. But after all these years, because I was was 24 when I had that brain tumor, so I've had more than enough time to adjust. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier your uh, Broadway debut was in Canterbury Tales, and how did that come about at first? Well, I yeah. got that audition, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I did my same number, and they happened to like it. So this one time that I did the audition, it was uh, Jim, James, no, that's wrong. I'll be able to dig his name up. Ryan Traub. Uh, uh, Jerry Weintraub, he mostly did films, but he was at the audition and he said, I think she ought to do it. She ought to do it. That's who ought to do it. And I'd gotten a show uh, called Dames at Sea the day before. And the the director had given and my, and then Gus, Gus Shermer, said, well, you got this Broadway show. You have to do that. And I said, well, Gus, I kind of like that other show. He said, it's off-Broadway. You've gotten a Broadway show. You're doing that. And I said, oh, okay. Because it wasn't so great a part. It was a lavish show, but it wasn't that great a role. But I did that. I got a Tony nomination for it. I don't know why. wasn't very good in it. But uh, I had to turn down the other show. And it, to me, was charming. And why do you think it was that the Canterbury Tales was not able to have a longer run? Wasn't good enough. <laughs> oh yeah, it just wasn't. I I don't think. I mean, I'm not sitting out in the audience, but to me, it didn't have the feeling. It was, as I said, it was lavish. It was historically interesting and funny, and it had great performers. I mean, it was George Rosie. It, it was Hermione Badley. It was. Uh, um, George Green, George Green, Alan Green, Shannon Green, you have to look that up. He, uh, Al, Al, oh, that's a singer. I can't think what his first name was. But they were very heavy-duty English actors who had come over to do it. So it had a lot of positive things about it, but it just wasn't good enough and appealed to the American public. Uh, yeah. 
And I'd be curious to know, how do you feel about critics and their influence on the theater? Uh, well, hmm. they can be extreme. People say they don't read critics, but they do. <laughs> and they read what they have to say. And sometimes they're very literate and very smart. But it's still an opinion, and it's still their biased opinion. And I'm very, knock wood, lucky with the critics. Um, I just am. I, in the beginning, I think I got a couple that weren't so great, but mostly I, I do very well by critics, maybe because they see how earnest I am. I don't know. But I think critics, on the whole, perform uh, a necessary evil because... <laughs> We like to know sort of what we're going to see and what is the opinion of it. And you find the critics that you more likely agree with in terms of your taste so that you follow their their lead about what shows they think you should see. Now, of course, it's turned into a whole other world where a show is not even successful if it doesn't run 20 years, yeah. which is ludicrous. I don't believe in that. I think it's harmful to uh, the creative community. I think it doesn't encourage new shows being put together and us growing and changing. It, it's just a, a repetitious kind of carousel we're on. <clears throat> and I think we'd be better off as performers being challenged and being uh, asked to do new things. And it's, it's more vital and it's better blood and energy for theater and for, the, for audiences. After a while, you just go, well, what do you want to see? Not saw that, saw that, saw that. Um, I don't think that should be a goal of theater. I think it's a goal of producers, quite frankly. I don't think it's a goal of the creative community at all. Yeah. yeah. I think they just want to make as much. And I also think that it's that people don't go anymore to see somebody in a show. They go to see the title of the show. Like, it doesn't really matter anymore who is in the, the lead. You'll go to see... Let's think of a show, we'll pick a show, a pretend show, Bananaville. You'll go see Bananaville without knowing who's in it. Yeah. Yeah. I will go see Phantom, I will go see Chicago, I will go see this one or that one. And you don't go to see a, a person up there. I don't know. Yeah. And um, after uh, Canterbury Tales, you took on what I believe is your only Broadway play, which is Love is a Time of Day. Um, and for those who don't know, what was this play about? I don't know either. <laughs> I, think, I think it was about a boy and a girl that fell in love and had a dog, and that's all I remember. And I, one night we did the show, because it only ran, I think, a week or two weeks or something, and there was this snowstorm, and we did this huge Broadway house. It's, I think it's the theater where Phantom oh. plays. Huge theater. And there were maybe 10 people in the audience that had made it because of the snow and because they hadn't read great things about the, the play itself. And we did the show for 10 people. I came out and made a little speech about, you made it here, and we're going to do this show for you, and blah, blah, blah. And they were very appreciative, and came all of them and sat down in the front row. And it was kind of sweet, really. Yeah. It really was. And I believe that uh, Tom Legon was your co-star in Adam? Yeah. What was that like with him? Well, he, he was a very attractive guy, 
and uh, had a lot of skills and had been actually in a, a show that I did. I was a replacement in a show called Your Own Thing. And Tom had been in the cast before they started replacing people, so I didn't know him then. But we had sort of parallel careers there for a while with what we were doing. And I don't know what finally became of him. Is he still, would you know if he's still acting? And I, I don't know. But that was the only experience I had with him. And when I did the play originally, it was out at this theater in Paramus, New Jersey, a, a sort of like a shopping center that had a theater, but a nice little theater. And I did it with Michael Douglas, the play. Oh, and so when you were uh, starting out on Broadway, what do you think, or what was the process like of finding your niche in terms of the roles that you would play? I can't answer that because I don't know. I don't know. I don't recall a time of um, of finding a niche necessarily. I'm I'm not very ambitious, and I'm not calculating in terms of how to run you know, a career and how to make it this thing that you plan. And I just sort of flew by the seat of my pants. And the fact that I don't count on things, I think keeps me in a state of not being frustrated and angry about not getting things or not being offered them because I don't necessarily try. I don't audition. I stopped because I... You know, and, and to have a career in an audition is a little bit tricky. So I I just go along with what comes along. And then, too, I had children and I had a family. And I've had a lot of things going on in my life that sometimes people that perform constantly don't have. And yeah. that was a choice that I made. Um, and I'm glad I did because I think probably, yeah, I think I'd be very sad if I'd missed all the, the other parts of my life. And I would love to uh, take a quick detour to ask about some of your screen credits, which are also numerous, like on stage. And so what appeals to you about screen work, maybe more than stage work? Nothing. Oh. I don't like it at all. I think I would like it if I had a very good and in-depth, character study role um i haven't had that kind of thing i've had sort of whimsical mostly working with animals but um i think i would like filmmaking as as an art form if i were able to do an in-depth role with a lot of um emotional uh complexity but i don't like the process you're sitting in a trailer you're coming out I, I have such admiration for the the great performances we've seen in film because that they're able to pull that kind of thing they and the editors and the director those sort of performances out of that process blows my mind because they do things out of order they do things by sentences they do that i mean it's a way of working that i don't have a technique for uh, i hear that very often the smaller films it's more like theater and that you start with sort of a beginning, a middle and end to an extent and that the work is very quiet and very, you know, not elaborate and not, uh, what's the word, not 
disrupted by all of the, the, the machinations going on around you, all the technical stuff and the lighting and the this and the that. So I'm impressed with film actors, beyond impressed. I think they're amazing. And the people that can do both. They're not many of them, but people that can do theater well and film are amazing creatures. And I, I would love to ask about a movie that I love that you starred in, which was The Star-Spangled Girl, the uh, Neil uh -huh. Simon movie. And did you have a lot of collaboration with Neil Simon on that? or No, I never met him. Oh. Uh, my husband worked with him uh, on a show called Little Me. He came in to rewrite some of uh, the, uh, the dialogue, and, and some of the, so he met him, and, but I never even met him. Oh. He, no, it was strictly... This guy, Jerry Paris, who was the director, and uh, the two actors, and Tony Roberts, and uh, Todd Sussman, and me, and that was it. And I'd never done anything on film in my life. I didn't know what I was doing. Oh, yeah. And I haven't done enough to know what I'd be doing now. <laughs> I, so somebody I read, I thought it was real smart. They said, um, in the theater, something, 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 and then... In film, what they're filming is your mind, meaning, of course, that when we see the best film performances, generally, they're not moving, and they're not indicating anything with expressions and so forth. They, they let you figure out the story going on in your head, the good film actors, whereas in theater, there's a lot of making faces and projecting and all that kind of stuff. It's a different technique. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did want to ask, too, about the uh, the Sandy Duncan special that you did with uh, Gene Kelly and Paul Lind, among others. And what was it like mm -hmm. to work with those two great uh, talents? Well, that was Rob Iscove who directed oh. and choreographed that. The, the fellow that I told you started, uh, Peter Pan, with me. And... Uh, I knew Paul Lynn from Hollywood Squares. So he and I had a relationship. I knew John Davidson from doing a special before uh, in Disneyland. So we knew each other. And uh, so Paul Lynn, who else was on? Oh, well, Gene Kelly, for goodness sake. Yeah. I would go over to, to is it Paramount? I can't remember where it was. And I would meet him. This was before the special. We were in L.A. And be in the sound studio because he wanted to get to know me and to just sort of move me around as a partner in the way that only he can move and dance. You know, that's just its signature. So to get to go over there and have these private rehearsal sessions with Gene Kelly was quite a thrill. And he was a gentleman to the core. And then when he came over to London to do the special, he would be, he'd whisper things to me that he would think, I think it'd be better if we would, da, 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 da. Oh. I mean, he was just so cool. Oh. He really was. And uh, everybody that worked with him said, so I had a lot of friends in uh, Dallas that, that think he did a show, Take Me Along, it's called Down in Dallas. And anyone who worked with him just said he was a joy. And the same for Donald O'Connor. Connor and I just hit it off like oh. great. And who else? Ginger Rogers. Uh, all of those old-time, you know, actresses and actors are just a different breed, really. Oh, yeah. yeah. And 
I would love to know how did it come about that you entered the show of Valerie after Valerie Harper had left? Um, I had just done a show called My One and Only with Tommy Toon, and my and I it was a one of the better experiences of my life in the theater. It was such a hit and so much fun and such a stylish, sophisticated show. He's great, and he was my first dance partner when I was in Texas when I was. 14 and he was going to that college I told you about Lon Morris and we were dancing together down in Tyler Texas together so that was a reuniting of, of people so that was great and what was your question oh uh, <laughs> my question was uh, how uh, the show Valerie happened yes so I finished doing my one and only and I went out to LA because my agent I'm television career and I hadn't done it in years so we moved out to LA and uh, Brandon Tartikoff the head of NBC called and said we'd like you to do a series we're going to do a pilot for you and uh, we just have to find the right thing to do so they found a pilot and we did it and it it, it, it wasn't it wasn't right it was not a bad show but it just wasn't right so Brandon said let's let's you know, do some more research, do another pilot and see. He says, you've, you've done your audition. Now we have to audition for you and get the right show. So they were working on it. And then he, I get a call from Brandon again. And he said, uh, something unusual has happened. One of the leads of one of our shows is leaving. And we need to find a replacement. Now you can hold off for the pilot. And we can keep working at that. and It could either happen or not. You don't know in this business. Or you can take a sure thing of a show that's got a pretty good rating and go into that. And so I watched the show, and I liked it. I liked the guys, and I liked the fact that it was not screaming and caring. People talked to each other, like really talked to each other, like a, a family. And I said, I'll do it. And I said, as long as I'm not a pawn for this changeover in other words is she valerie in fact leaving the show because i don't want it to be sandy is going to come in here and do this show if you don't shape up young lady and it was none of that she had already made a decision to leave and so the part was completely open and i said okay i'll, I'll try it and i had a great time and speaking of uh, pilots that were built around you, you had uh, two shows. You had Funny Face and the Sandy Duncan show. And so how did how did those shows sort of get built around you? Did you have a lot of input or? No, I, uh, that was, that was right after Star Spangled Girl, Funny Face. And I think it was put together because of Funny Face. I mean, because of, uh, uh, Star Spangled Girl and the cat, though, not the cat, the Million Dollar Duck. Those two films had just come out. I'd just done The Boyfriend on Broadway, so there was a little bit of a momentum. And uh, they said, Why don't, let's do a television series for this girl. So they did it, and it was very successful. I mean, it was always in the top ten. And then I got ill, and had they had to close down production. And it came back months later and they totally redone it to protect me monthly they said we're not going to do these long film hours because i get in at six in the morning and film till sometimes midnight oh. on on any day of the week it would be like that and then i have home stay up learn my lines so i'd be up to like three in the morning and then have to get up at five i mean i was i was 
stretched out to my limit. So I went to a, a an audience show, you know, as opposed to these film shows. They did an audience show. You rehearse, rehearse, and then you do it for a half hour like a theater show. Unfortunately, they replaced all the creative people on the show and came up with a, a version of something that wasn't very good and not very fulfilling to do. It just was the wrong show. And it bombed. It was not good. And I wasn't good in it. It was one of those shows I just talked to you about where people are yelling and being funny, you know, as opposed to just talking to each other in a situational comedy thing. So it, it went away within 13 weeks. Oh, I, and I was glad. Oh, but I, I would love to ask about some of the people who were on these shows with you, including uh, Tom Bosley and Marion Mercer were yeah. two of them. Marion Mercer, uh, Marion Mercer's a bitch. No, I'm kidding. Mary, <laughs> how old are you again? You're 13, 14. Okay. Uh, uh, Marion Mercer had won the Tony Award over me. Oh. <laughs> when we were doing, I think it was, um, it wasn't the boyfriend. It was, um, it was Canterbury Tales, yeah. Oh. And she, she won, and she was wonderful. It was a, a great performance she did, and, um, uh, do you have it in front of you? It's what was the show? Um, uh, the apartment was made into the movie. Oh. The apartment was made. Uh, promises, promises. Yes, there you go. Oh. So, see, it's good to have young brain cells. Yes, promises, promises, and she won the Tony. So when we met up on the set, I went, "Oh, great! They got <laughs> you." She was laughing, and then there was another actress, and there was Tom Bobby, who I'd also worked with. What did I work with him on? can't remember but we had worked together i think he'd been a guest on on funny face i'm not sure but we hit it off fine all the time it wasn't anything to do with the cast being wrong or not being good it was just the, the wrong premise and the wrong interpretation of who i am i mean yeah. i couldn't even relate to what they'd written for me to do uh, and fred silverman came down to the set one day and the, the first day of the taping, and he said, "Who is this? Who is this producing this? Who is who is directing for the show? It was the wrong team to put together." Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Um, and something else I'd love to ask about is you made a uh, workout video, which was popular at this time. And so, what was the inspiration behind this—the five-minute workout that you? Um, a friend of mine is a choreographer, Warren, uh, I mean, not Warren, not Warren Carlisle, Kevin Carlisle, two Carlisles out there at the choreograph, uh, Kevin Carlisle, and we worked on things together, and he said, I'd like to do a workout tape for older people uh, who can do, move all the parts of their body, even sitting in a chair, and get exercise for arthritis in their hands, and they were, you know, he said, that's what I'd like to do. I said, okay. Kevin, I don't really want to do that. And he said, now come on, blah, 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 blah. So I ended up doing it, and it, it did have success. It's kind, of a, it's a kind of a joke tape because you go, oh, yeah, five-minute workout. But the truth of the matter is he put something together, and I was just there to demonstrate with him what it was. But he put a, a workout program for older people that really does work. Oh. I mean, I, I must say, it's, I don't know how many years ago that was done but it's, it's effective if people do it it helps it helps their 
you know, their bones and their, their joints, mainly. And um, another great uh, stage and movie star who you worked with on screen was Danny Kaye in Pinocchio. Uh, and what, yeah. what was that like to be with him? Brilliant. Uh, he, we hit it off just immediately, and he, um, I was I was in a marriage at the time. Uh, he said, "You can't you can't live like this because he said you're closing yourself up to the world." And he would do things like get come get me and put me in a car and we go down to Chinatown and go to all the Chinese shops. He's a brilliant chef. He just, you know, does Chinese cooking like nobody can. And we would get the, you know, I'd have to get, see the, the goose with his head cut up. I would be all that kind of stuff. But he would do every, he'd take me up in a, his Learjet. And say, he just opened my eyes to a world that I had sort of shut down to because my ex-husband was a doctor, physician, very well-respected, wonderful career, and that was his focus, and it became my focus in the marriage. That yeah. That's our identity. I sort of lost that I was an entertainer and that I had a life and, a, you know, I was sublimating my career and my life to his, and it wasn't healthy. And Danny got me out of that situation, really, we we adored each other. We just did. Oh, yes, yes. And that brings me to ask, how did you first meet your uh, husband now, Don Korea, who's himself yeah. a great star? Yep, yeah. oh. yep. Yeah. We, um, we met on a, a television show. Oh. It was his first job in, he'd been uh, in an a acrobatic act in Las Vegas at like 16, 17, and then uh, danced in various places and came to to LA to try and live and make um, a business out of television uh, dancing on television specials that existed then. They don't exist anymore. After MTV, they just went away for the most part. Now we get country music awards, and but they're not those big variety specials. Like, everyone had one, you know. If you didn't do Flip Wilson one week, you'd do Perry Como, or you would do, a, it would be some star that had a, and I did a lot of those, and that was a lot of, I did one with just the four of us, Bing Crosby, uh, Bob Hope, and Pearl Bailey, and wow. I was the fourth person. It was that kind of stuff you get to do that was thrilling. And Don and I met on my television, my variety show, which was, Sandy Duncan, or not Sandy, just Sandy in Disneyland, and the choreographer, Ron Field, who had become my sort of mentor in, in the TV dance world, said, we're going to get this young guy on this show, I'm determined. He said he just got to L.A., and he is one brilliant dancer. And I was, well, that's fine, because I was married at the time, and I thought, well, that good, get a good dancer. He said, and he's cute as a button. <laughs> I went, well... Ron, that doesn't really apply to me. I've got, you know. So he came on, uh, he came on to a rehearsal one day, and I thought, first of all, he was the nicest guy in the world, just so pleasant, so eager to help and do the right thing. And we did that special together. And then for the next eight years, any variety special that I did, they'd go, let's see if we can get Don Korea. And I go, great, he's great. And um, we did a lot of, of tele lot of television specials together and dancing. And dancing is a very uh, trusting, 
intimate relationship. You know, you have to trust that the guy's not going to drop you on your head, which he never did. He just doesn't drop people. So we did a lot of specials. And then I was getting a divorce because it had not worked out uh, for all the reasons I told you about sublimating myself to someone else and giving up my life's career. It just didn't work. So I was putting together a nightclub act. And I took all the money I had, which was $150,000, that's all the money I'd saved, and I said, I'm going to put it into this nightclub act. And the choreographer was Rob Iscove, and he said, well, let's see if we can get Don Korea for it to be one of the boys. And I said, he's not going to do this. I said, he works all the time. And I said, he just did chorus lines. And he's not going to do it. So he called and he said, yeah, he, he was on board. He's going to do it. And then we got another dancer friend of mine that I worked with, Reed Jones. And the three of us put together this, and with Rob, this really hard dance nightclub act, which is rarely done in Vegas. They don't dance much, except for Julia Prowse. Most people just stand and sing in a microphone. So it was hard. It was like a little Broadway show. And we, we, we got ready to go. It was about three days before we're leaving. And Don gets a, a phone call at rehearsal. And he took the phone call and he came back. I said, everything okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I said, well, who was it? And he said, it was uh, Liza's reps. And I said, Liza's reps? He said, you know, agent, manager, and they want me to do her act. She's going into New York. And I went, oh, oh, how great. <laughs> Oh, that's great! I said, "Are you are you gonna are you gonna do it right?" And he went, "No, I think I'll stay with this." And then I knew, "Oh, great! <laughs> we're we're set." So we started dating during the uh, the nightclub tour, and a year later we got married. Oh. When I when I was doing Peter Pan and he was doing Chorus Line. Oh, that's wonderful. And so I'd love to uh, go back to the theater by asking you about the boyfriend, which you've mentioned a few times. And so had you seen uh, Julie Andrews' performance in this? And did you? No, because she only did it in uh, in London. The only um, the only connection I ever had with Julie was I did her, tele her television variety show. Oh. And we did a number together called... Mm, I don't remember it. I can't remember. But we did a number together, and I did a couple of other numbers on her show. But that's the only uh, time we've been together to work or anything. And so to uh, to go back to the boyfriend, um, what makes you sort of accept a vehicle? Like what would appeal to you about a show to star in? Um, today. Oh, today or, or then when you were? Oh, then, just a job. And Harvey Evans is going to be my partner, and I loved the show. I thought it was really quirky and fun. And the, the dance, a friend of mine, Buddy Schwab, was going to choreograph it. Gus Shermer directed it. And it was like a family. And I, I didn't think twice about it. In fact, I had to talk Gus into letting me do it because I was very close to getting some other show. And he said, you don't want to do this. And I said, I really do, Gus. Oh, you, and he has a big gruff voice. He says, you don't want to do this. You're not, you're not doing this. You're not doing this. 
I said, Gus, please let me do this show. I know I can do it. And I really want to, and wine, wine, wine. So he let me do it, and I got a Tony nomination, and I had the best time doing that show. Yeah. So I won. (laughs) And what would the show have to be? I think it's a hard question to even answer, because I don't know what shows are anymore. Uh, It would have to be something that was character-driven. And um, because the last thing I've done in New York was 10 years ago. Uh, not last thing, I did Chicago, and then I did I did a show called No No Nanette at New York City Center, and it was a huge dance role, and the choreographer made it extra huge and hard because, oh, the old lady can still dance, because I was 63 when I did it. So I'm kicking over my head and dancing the Charleston, and there are 24 and 25-year-olds behind me. So I'm, you know, I'm determined to keep up with them. And I did, but my back had been in bad shape before it, and then this rehearsal just sent me into, I was getting injections of lidocaine into my spine at half hour. And then I'd go out and do the first act where there was a big dance number. And then at intermission, I'd get another injection. Luckily, the show uh, at uh, New York City Center, only they're only done for a, a week. So I had eight performances, and then I was done. So at the end of that, I'm barely walking, and I had back surgery, uh, which solved the back problem. But it, it makes it kind of impossible to dance like that because they fuse you know, your spine, and they put in discs and all kinds of stuff. So the dancing days, well, they'd be over anyway, but now they're really kind of not going to happen dance-wise. I like to do a play, to be honest with you, more than a musical. And I'd be curious to ask, and I can definitely cut this out if you'd rather not talk about this, but I believe you were briefly in Finding Neverland. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I I call it never, 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 (laughs) never land. But I went in as a just kind of like, oh, why not? You know, I'm not doing anything. It doesn't dance the the role. I'm just going to go do this. I wasn't fond of the show. I saw it. My son was with me. He sort of looked at me like, Mom, and I said, "Well, I know, but I, you know, I just I'm gonna try and see if." So the the situation with that is that they are done. Like I, I gather, I'm told most shows are done today. They rehearse the person four or five days oh. tops. So it's not a real rehearsal. You don't work with the actors. You work in a room with the stage manager or somebody just reading the lines, and you say yours back. And then there's a different pianist every day. And you, I couldn't learn it. I mean, I don't have the the uh, training to work that way. I don't even know what that is. And then they came in to do sort of a put in one afternoon to let me see and all the, I'd go so you're playing so and so and this one boy go oh no 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 I'm the understudy are, so are you doing so no 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 I'm just here so you never get to do the show you just get these weird rehearsals so I was on the stage with my so called put in rehearsal with part of the cast and the guy who was the stage manager, whose name I blocked, I don't even remember who he is, 
he came up to me and he said, here's some notes that I've taken and uh, here there. He gave me a notebook of 100 notes. Wow. 100. <sighs> and I looked at it and I went on stage and I thought, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to incorporate 100 notes. It, like he'd say things like, your foot was out of the, uh, the, uh, the pool, the light pool. And I'm thinking, well, then move the fucking light. No, move the light. So it, it, it became a thing that I'd never experienced, too, where I wasn't the star of the show, and I was the least of their concerns and worries, so you have to just handle it yourself. And I thought, I'm incapable of doing this, and I don't want to ruin this cast show. So I turned up stage, and I said to the woman who was the understudy, who had been doing it for a, a week or two or three, and I said, Mary, I said, I know that you are a fine actress. And you know this role inside and out. And for the health of this show and for the other actors, I'm going to bow out because, you know what, I can't do this right now. And then I turned to the front and I said to the whoever was sitting out there, the big monkey bucks, I said, I can't ever do this show. And I left the stage and I went upstairs and I called my husband. I said, will you please come get me? I, 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 it's pouring rain and I've got all this stuff to get. I packed up my dressing room and I was outside within maybe 20 minutes. And that was the end of that. Never saw them, never heard from them again. And I knew from that point on that if I ever step into a role like that, the way they used to do it, you rehearse for two weeks. But now, because it's a matter of money, always now, they don't treat actors properly and let them do their process of learning a role and feeling it in their body. And you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So I left. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> And you mentioned that you might like to still do a play, maybe on Broadway. Is there a specific play that you would want to do? or No, I'd like to do a new... I, it's not the appropriate uh, time in the world right now uh, because of all that's going on. But I have done in the past few years, I did, like everybody in show business, I did love letters, love yeah. doing that. A few times I did it. I love doing Driving Miss Daisy, which is not, you know, uh, I was going to do it recently and somebody for the actress fun and I said, maybe the tone of the play, I said, the tone of the play is, it's a love story. That's the tone of the play. It starts out that she's this, you know, prejudiced bigot, you know, the, the way she was raised, wealthy woman. Who I said, but it winds up that they actually love each other. Not in a you know a, um, a romantic way, but in that friend way where she says to him, "You're my best friend. Yeah. You're my best friend." Uh, anyway, so I like to do plays like that. I like to do plays that have some heart to it, and I'd like to you know get to do. I don't know if that I ever will, and I'm not gonna fret you know for the rest of my life. But that would be my ideal job oh, yeah. is to do a new play. And you, uh, in 2004, you went on tour with The King and I, and which was very successful. And what was it like to be working with Martin Vidnovic and to be doing this role? Martin is nuts, oh. but brilliant. He is, he, 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 he admits his craziness. And, uh, I mean, he's just all over the place. But he is, he's got a, an incredible voice. 
and he's interesting, and he plays the way that I know how to play in acting, which pinch react, you know, you you stay in the moment, whatever the moment leads you to, that's what you do, you don't lay out your performance and imitate yourself day after day, you, you stay in the moment of what's going on. I loved working with him, I just did, and the show itself was a huge, huge success on the road, uh, critically and, and business-wise, and I did it because it was a challenge, because I thought, oh, God, I can't sing this score. I can't sing this score. This is not my voice. And I trained, and I worked, and I managed to, to do it. And I was very proud of that show. And, and I did it without dancing. It is only shall we dance, and the rest of it is not. It's acting and singing, so I, didn't, I couldn't rely on my, my dancing distraction. And you, um, you've mentioned a few times throughout our interview the various Tonys, and what have your experiences been like with the Tony Awards? Um, they were all so long ago, it's hard to remember. Oh. Uh, they're exciting. Um, you think you're going to win every time, but you know you're not, but then you think you are, and then you know you're not. And so it goes like that, and I had one eerie thing happen. Uh, I mentioned, I think, that Marion Mercer won in um, Promises, Promises, and I had had a dream the night before. I was married to a rock and roll singer. We'd met during Your Own Thing, that play that I told you Tom Ligon had been in. So I had a dream the night before the Tony Awards. I, I woke up and I said, Bruce, I'm not going to win this. He went, oh, you're just being ill. And I said, no, I'm really not going to. I had a dream. Well, what a dream to me. So I went into the theater that night and told all the my roommates in the dressing room, I said, I'm not going to win this. And I was so upset. I'm not going to win. It's going to be someone else. It's going to be Marion Mercer. And they're all going, oh, no, 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 of course. And then the next night it was, the Tony Awards, and I'm sitting down <laughs> in the audience, and I opened the program. Oh, and that was it, too. Oh, that was the other thing. And I dreamed that uh, not only did I not win, but... Um, Oh, God. Um, what? What's his name? I can't think of it. We'll think of an actor and just call it that. But it was a particular actor. He did... Oh, you're good at your, your theater history. He's the man who did... Bobby Morse. Okay, there oh, we go. Oh. Prejudice. 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 What am I taking? Prejudice. Uh, Bobby Morse. Uh, I said, and I dreamed that Bobby Morse is going to apologize and say, Sandy, you didn't win the award. Well, I get into the theater and I sit down and I open the program and Bobby Morse is presenting my category. And I went, Bruce, look, he's presenting the category. I told you, I'm not going to win because it's Bobby Morris. He's going to say, he's sorry I didn't win, but it's Marion Mercer. Well, don't you know, he comes on stage and the winner is Marion Mercer. And it was Bobby Morris who was giving the award. He did not apologize to me, however. Oh. <laughs> he did not say, I'm sorry, Sandy. He just gave it to her. <laughs> yeah. You, um, I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I would love to ask about Chicago, which you made such a huge success in. And so how did that first come about that you came into that show? Uh, I was going to go into it uh, when um, 
who was doing when uh, uh, Annie left they wanted me to come into it but I couldn't because of something personal I don't even remember now what it was so uh, Karen uh, Ziemba went in for a while and then I decided whatever resolved itself resolved itself and they said well can you do it now I said yes I can so they got Ruthie Henschel who had been doing it in London to do it and we became instant best friends I mean we're still the closest friends I can imagine. I just talked to her yesterday, and she's going to do Passion over in London, oh. and hopefully we'll bring it here. She's co-producing it, and she's going to uh, play the Fusco, 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 I think the character is. Anyway, she and I did it, and uh, we just had the ball of a oh. lifetime rehearsing together. We were going out to Sacramento to break in our our relationship in the show and then come into New York after our break-in day and I was doing a sometimes I'm up sometimes I'm down whatever that is and I had on shoes that hadn't been rubbered yet and they were really high hills and I slipped through the the ladder on the side of the stage and started falling 10 oh. feet landed in these high heels on my foot and of course totally embarrassed I went, fine, I'm fine. No, 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 no. I didn't know I'm fine. I have upper body strength. I was holding onto the ladder. Don't worry, don't worry. So kept dancing, and then we went out to Sacramento the next day. Kept dancing. I'd been dancing on it for about a week, I guess. Um, and then suddenly, right before we were to open out there, uh, I turned my ankle in a um, honey rag, and I said, I can't get up. So they took me to the doctor, and he said, you've been dancing on this for a full week. You've got a broken foot, you know. And I went, oh. He said, we're putting a cast on, and it's a bad break, and you're going to have to wear it a good four or five months. I went, no, I can't. We're going to New York. I was just heartbroken. So my going into it was delayed by about five months. And by the time I got there, Ruthie was going to be there for two months, I think. And then she had to leave because she had signed on to do um, Come come All Together, Sondheim, and it was a review. And so she couldn't get out of the contract. Oh, it was heartbreaking. And then I got into the part and different uh, Velmas would come in. And I loved it. I think it's my favorite show I've ever done. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. What what was the was it challenging to have such a heavy dance role? I mean, of course you are a great dancer, but what was it? No, it was oh. great. I I loved it. I and I got great reviews for it. I'm in a couple of books saying you know that I was one of the if not the best Roxy yes. because I did it in a whole different way. I just love doing the show, and I would have stayed longer, but. Uh, Barry Weiser got things all screwed up somehow, as only he can do. But I, I just wasn't able to stay under his terms, oh. so I left. But boy, I think I'd still be there trying to kick over my head. <laughs> <laughs> and to uh, to take us up to the present day, what were you doing right before the uh, shutdown, before quarantine? I was doing a play, um, a new play called Middletown. And um, where was I? I was in Marietta, Georgia first, 
and it uh, it's a play that is primarily read, not altogether, but mostly. And um, so there were only like three days, I think, tops of being with this cast that had done it several times together uh, to to read through it and get through it and do the little moves that have to be done. So did it in Marietta, Georgia. Then we went to Chicago, and I'm now like white knuckling it because I'm thinking, well, oh, God. And it got brilliant reviews, and uh, the critics loved it. And then the pandemic came, and it closed down, of oh. course. So uh, they've asked me to do it again, and I, I didn't think I really wanted to, but to do it, it's, it's for a very short run, and it's an hour away from where my niece lives in Texas. So I'm going to go there and do this play, oh. primarily so I can be around my niece. Oh, that's great. And what was this uh, period of quarantine like for you as an artist and a person? And, and it's, um, it's been depressing, like it is for everyone, and you feel confined, and you feel lonely, and you feel, even with this great relationship I have, and we've done very well, but it's just the being away from life and social and freedom and but I must say I, I can't complain because we have a situation where we live that couldn't be more lovely oh. so I can't bitch because I have friends that are you know have gotten through it in a one room apartment in New York okay. um, the pandemic's been a different experience for different people you know depending on how they live and what they have and how they're able to move around. Like, we were able always to go outside. I can't imagine being in that situation in New York where you're in your apartment and you can't really go outside unless you, you know, and I wear masks. We're religious about masks and following the rules and getting our vaccinations and stuff. But just to be confined like that had to be so claustrophobic for many, many people. And just not to escape and have some place to go that you can get away from the rest of your family. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd love to uh, ask you a final question, which is um, with such a uh, legendary career, I'd love to know what advice would you give to somebody just starting out? I don't think there's any advice to give uh, really, because I had a son that was at one point in his life just starting out. You have to say to somebody, just be sure that you really love what you're doing. I mean, because it's impossible otherwise. I don't know if that's true of all jobs, but I know it's true of, of show business. You have to love what you're doing uh, and be passionate about it. And you have to be flexible. And you have to have... Um, I don't think you should... I think you just should do the work, is what I think. I think getting all tangled up in the other stuff about the business is a pitfall. I think you just must love the work and do the work the best you can and the rest of it has to just fall where it does. So that's it. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a great honor for me. My my pleasure to talk to you. You're smart as a whip and uh, one of the better interviews I've had in my entire life. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by veteran Broadway dancer Michonne Peacock, 
Michon Peacock performed on Broadway in Georgie, Beggar on Horseback, That's Entertainment, Seesaw, Rachel Lily Rosenblum and Don't You Ever Forget It, Chicago, and Bring Back Birdie. She was also, along with Tony Stevens, the creator of the idea for the tape sessions that inspired A Chorus Line. Her screen credits include Jane Austen in Manhattan and She's Having a Baby, and she appeared off-Broadway in Upstairs at O'Neill's and Love Me, Love My Children. You won't want to miss this fascinating deep dive into the Broadway scene in the 1970s with one of its best dancers. So make sure to tune back in for that. Make sure to tune in for Trivia Night tomorrow, and thanks for listening.